Hi, this is Jason Lee, pastor of Casper Alliance Church, and a Merry Christmas. We are starting our Christmas series. I know I say this in the, actually on Sunday morning. We understand that Advent started the week before. We're doing four weeks of Advent. Um, we know that we're a week off from the tradi- traditional calendar. But this is week one of Advent. The whole series is going to be about hope. Um, pretty uh, classic. Everybody talks about hope at Christmas. And we're not any different than that. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Turn me to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read Isaiah 9. Um, every week for the next four weeks. So you'll hear it multiple times. It is, um, I'm just, that's what we're going to do. Starting with verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of slavery, of their slavery, sorry, and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms, blood stained by war, will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end and he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Here's where we're going for the next few weeks. We're going to walk through some Isaiah passages, and uh, I will, we're going to talk about the traditional um, Advent candles. I've thought about different ways to do it. Uh, We're going to talk about hope this morning, but each week we'll have a different theme, but essentially we're walking through some, through some Isaiah stuff you've heard before. Now here's the deal. I was, as I was like working through just what to say and how to say it, I wanted, I came to this, um, this realization that I've, I've realized, uh, a hundred thousand times, but it, it hit me again that, um, when I talk on Sunday mornings, I uh, will always talk about the good news of Jesus every Sunday morning. And, and this isn't to criticize anyone else anywhere else, but I want to say the reason I do that is so I can encourage myself. I need to hear the good news for me every Sunday. And if I need to hear the good news, I just assume that everybody else needs to hear the good news also. The good news isn't designed as a one-time event in your life to where you get to say, yes, I believe in that. I'm going to pray to have Jesus come into my heart, and it's done. Um, The good news is the conversation that God's people who believe in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, communicate to one another to encourage us when things are pretty discouraging. And so when we talk about the hope of 
Jesus or the hope of Christmas or the hope candle or the prophecy candle, um, we, are, we are directly saying, I want to have hope that whatever I'm experiencing can be fixed. This is what the good news in my mind does. And that doesn't change Uh, It doesn't change the checking account. It doesn't change your work conditions necessarily. It doesn't change uh, the way in which the, the weather is or how the wind blows in Wyoming. It doesn't change any of that stuff. But it changes the attitude of your heart, and it should point you in a direction that says, man, I am so hopeful. I'm so hopeful for Jesus. And because I have a relationship with him, I can... I can sustain today. I can sustain tomorrow. I can sustain next week. And, and better than just sustain, I'm going to invite you into the same hope that I have. I'm going to invite you into the same life that I live. I'm going to invite you into the same reason that I'm able to get up each morning and put a smile on my face and step into whatever I'm stepping into. That's illogical. And it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's actually quite uh, impossible to do on our own. And I think all of you know this, and so do I. But that's why every Sunday you'll hear me talk about the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, and the good news. And it's not simplistic. It might seem simplistic. You need it. You absolutely need it. I need it. Because it's just not fun out there in the world today. And I do believe that fun is the great distraction that, remi- that makes us feel like we're okay. And so we are going to read the hopeful passages of Isaiah each week. I'm going to read Isaiah 9 each week just to remind us that Jesus is coming. We are celebrating Advent um, a season of awaiting or waiting for the Lord, excitement, the arrival of Christ. But we're also living out a second advent right now, waiting for Jesus to return. Not to fix the problems, but to, to restroy, restroy. That's a combination of restore and destroy at the same time. Restroy life. Write it down. I just made up a new word. Not the first time, if you're following along in your playbook. But today we need to talk about hope. Having faith in Christ to, to walk through your life is illogically hopeful. And I need you to understand, it doesn't make sense to live in the way of a hopeful person when you watch news, when you read the Twitter feed, when you do virtually anything right now. It's not logical to be hopeful. And it's not fake to be hopeful either. When somebody has encountered the living Christ, when somebody has, has put their faith in Jesus, has somebody has looked at this cross and said, I believe that somebody came, his name was Jesus, and he lived his life, and he was executed on this cross for the forgiveness of sins, and my sin belonged, he took them on his own, and he said, I'm going to own these sins for you. And they put him in a grave and he was resurrected three days saying, ha ha, your sin has no power over the world anymore. And I have faith in that. That's illogical and it doesn't make any sense. And, and when you're a teenager, sometimes it feels like fantasy. You're like, is this real? And if you even read Isaiah 9, it's like this strange prophecy that's been written in all of these books before. There'll be a child that's going to be born someday and he will be the one 
the anointed one, the Neo of our life. And you're just like, really? <laughs> Another prophecy about a kid who's going to be born in some random town? Yes, it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It's one of those things that, that like, you're like, well, am I a crazy person because I believe this? few years ago, probably eight, that's a few, right? Eight years ago, I, um, I went through trying to figure out, and I, I had these conversations in, in the young adult world of ministry to where um, atheism, ego, um, just the, the world of hu humanism was so prevalent that I tried really hard to figure out, could I not believe? And, and being in constant discussions with non-Christians um, who are educated, intelligent, have all the right words and answers, I tried, could I not believe? What would it look like if I didn't believe? What would it look like if I was not a believer in Jesus Christ? How would that play out in my life? And first of all, I would be unemployed. That, that was like number one. I was like, well, <laughs> guess I don't have a job anymore. Okay, I can go find a job. Now what's the next thing? So I need to replace my income. And I actually went through this exercise trying to figure it out. And I read it in a book, like to walk, your, walk yourself through the exercise of what it would look like to not believe. And every time I got to a certain point in my life, I, or a certain point of like the, the exercise, I would be like, but I would go to hell. And I believe in that. I believe that that exists. I believe that there's a consequence for people who do bad things. I believe that that's real. And going like the negative route actually produced more and more like, I have to believe this. There's no way I can even get my brain out of believing this because I believe so much in that somebody did come to live his life and to die on a cross to, that loves me so very much that no matter what I do, I will be forgiven because, because that was the promise. And I believe in it. And there's so much just, I, I can't get away from it. So I tried the exercise. It doesn't work. It didn't work for me. Now, it works for some. I don't know how, but it does. But it's illogical, and I'm getting, that's my point. It's it doesn't make sense to believe the things that we believe. But we continue to do it, and I continue to do it. I put myself in the place of um, somebody who loves God and is just discouraged all the time. And what does that look like to live that life daily? So let's put ourselves into the story of the prophet's time in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. Imagine being in exile being rescued from slavery and then put back into it, rescued, put back into it. And you've been promised from, from Abraham's time, Genesis 12, that there will be a blessing and you will inherit this land and you, and you know the stories of Moses and he brought you out. And now you're living in this place where these prophets are standing up, continuing to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. 
So Isaiah comes on the scene. Verse 8, then I heard aloud, then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to the people? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And he said, yes, go and say to the people, listen carefully, but do not understand. Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, or turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? The prophet saying, how long do we have to live in this way? How long does it have to look like this? How long do we have to be under this burden, under this curse, under this like life that we're currently, how long do I have to be discouraged? And he replied, until the towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, I will be invaded, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. How long do we have to be discouraged? How long do we have to feel this way? How long does it have to look like this? How long do I have to be disappointed or frustrated in my life? How long do we have to be prisoners or exiles or slaves until it's all gone? Except for I will leave a seed. I will give you a little bit of Hope. Just a touch of hope. Turn with me to Isaiah 7. Actually, just look over at Isaiah 7. <laughs> Verse 10 of Isaiah 7. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it dif as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look. The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before that child is that old, the lands of two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Then the Lord will bring things on your nation and your family unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. How long do we have to live this way? How long? I'll go send the message. I'll go, Isaiah saying, I'll go talk to the people. How long do we have to do it like this though? Until it's completely deserted, but I'll leave a stump. I'll leave a seed. Here's a, here's a little bit of hope. All right, now here's another little bit of hope. There will be a lady, she will be a virgin, and she will give birth, and that son will be God with us, Emmanuel, another seed, another little touch of hope. Then we get to Isaiah 9, which I've already read, and it gets a little bit deeper, a little bit more specific. All of this stuff has to happen, but for unto us a child is born, the more hope, and the government will rest on him, and he will be wonderful, counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. More hope, even in the midst of war and struggle and strife and pain and discomfort and slavery. And then we get to the passage. We get to the passage uh, that was read by uh, Flint this morning, uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah. And from the stump of Jesse, not, now it's not just a seed. 
It's not just from a virgin. It's not just named and has a particular task and role with government and what kind of person he's going to be. It's from a particular line. So now all of a sudden this little seed is starting to grow and give birth to hope and life and it's growing. And each chapter we walk along through Isaiah, the prophets continue to talk a little bit more specific, a little bit more specific. To there went the ham. More specific about what's, why you need to have hope. Now we can trace where it's going to start. Play this video for me. This is a Bible Project video about hope, the word hope. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the flood waters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person. which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better, but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. 
In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. Optimism. Optimism is, is this idea that and you heard it that, that our circumstances will begin to come into order so that we can achieve or have the thing that we wish for or want. Hope, hope is beyond that. Hope is like a, is a way more angry version of optimism. It's like, I, no matter what, I trust and believe that this is going to happen, that I believe it. As we walk through Isaiah, and if you, and we were to take, and we could, you could do this in your own study time, you can walk through Isaiah, and it gets very specific as each chapter moves along. God says, here's who the Messiah is, gives a little bit more detail, and it also says, reminds the people, here's who I am. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 40. This is just a continued reminder. Remember who I am is what, is what God's saying. Remember who I am. You can trust in me and you can have hope because I want you to remember who I am. Put your faith and trust in that, into my character, into who I, what I've done and how I've, how I've created, how I've led and all that you've experienced. So Isaiah 40, picking up at verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens who created all the stars. He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name because of its, his great power and incomparable strength. Not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure his depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youth will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord, here's your bumper sticker verse, will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not go weary. They will walk and not faint. This is Isaiah the prophet saying, remember, God has told me who he is. You need to remember this too so that you can live with hope, live with an understanding that God says who he says he is and he's going to continue to provide a way and he's going to continue to show the way to restoration and life and he's going to show the way to, to abundance not in stuff, but in the way in which your soul is rescued. That's hope. 
As he moves through Isaiah and you get to Isaiah 53, it gives a very clear picture of what's going to happen to this one uh, kid who's going to show up that's born of a virgin, that's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. They're going to kill him. The anointed one's going to, the gospel is presented through Isaiah to give the reader or the exile or those who are suffering hope to live out in this world. So you might grow weary, you might be exhausted, you might feel the pressure of earth on you, the weight of sin on you, but there is hope and it's illogical. Now, let's move to the New Testament for a second. Matthew 1 Okay, now there's been silence. God stopped reminding his people for a moment. And the gospels are written very specifically in a way to encourage a, a particular group. Matthew's written to Jews. Written to those who would have read the scroll of Isaiah and like have lost their hope would have lost or have grown weary and exhausted. He's written to that group of people. And what does he start? Everybody kind of ignores this. Well, not everybody. People ignore this genealogy. But there's a reason for the genealogy. Here we go. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to butcher at least four names. This is the record of the ancestors of who? Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that Isaiah spoke of. This is the record a descendant of David and of Abraham. From the stump of Jesse, from this line that I promised, that was promised, that this is the genealogy. You can trace this now, people that I'm writing this lecture. Here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, who was the mother of Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Amadab. And Amadab was the father of Nashon. And Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz, who was the mother of Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, who was the mother of Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of the king of David. David was the father of Solomon. And who was the mother? Was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jeroham. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Axel. Uzziah. Axel. Martin. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoachin. And the brothers that were born in the time of exile to Babylon. And the Babylon, after the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Sheatiel. Sheatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiah was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok was the father of Akim, Akim was the father of Iliad, Iliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar was the father of Methan, Methan was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now, if you're a person, you're reading this, you can all of a sudden now trace this, you know this genealogy, you're like, I've heard of all these people, I know of all these people. All of a sudden, what seemed like illogical, hopeful words of Neo, the, the one, the anointed one who's going to show up and save us all, is now given a real name to real genealogy, to real people in their mind. It's concrete. So Jesus who we're called to have hope in for salvation is traced to real people 
that the Israelites can go, I've heard of these guys, I know these guys. All of a sudden, this hope becomes an anchor because anchor is rooted in something they have awareness to and understanding and history, and they just know. I know these people. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from Babylonian exile to Messiah. This isn't included for just funsies. This is included to solidify hope for the people searching for their Savior. You read the scroll of Isaiah. You've looked at it. It's to give them an anchor. Turn with me to Hebrews 6. And then I'm going to wrap up here after this. God, verse 17, God bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is strong and a trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in order of Melchizedek. The hope that we cling to is anchored in that God cannot lie. God is revealing himself over and over and over again from Genesis to now that he can be trusted. And when he says he can be trusted, there's no better thing to put your trust in. So it becomes illogically hopeful. It doesn't make sense for us to be hopeful. When you turn on the news, when you look all over the world, when you read about what's happening, when you look at your own life and you see things that are going on in your family, it's hard to be hopeful. And Jesus is saying, no, let me cut through that. I did the work. I went to the cross. I died. Not so you could have a, a better life, but you could have a saved life. See, we conflate our circumstance with where our soul lies. Our life and our soul are different. Sure, we're walking around, soul's inside of us. I don't know. It's this thing, right? But we conflate the two and we say, I'm only good if life is good. And that's wrong. That's wrong. I'm telling you, don't do that anymore. Because hope dies there. When you have to be encouraged daily and have to have things go right in order for you to have good faith or strong faith, it it's not sustainable. This is why genealogy matters. Anchor yourself to this trustworthy genealogy that Jesus is who he says he is, came from where he said he came, did the things he said he did, lived the way he said he did, died the way he died, and was resurrected so that you can live illogically hopeful. Illogical hope gives peace to people who are at war within themselves and the world. 
It creates peace. Illogical hope gives purpose to people who are lost. Illogical hope gives life to the people who are dead in their sins. Illogical hope gives a plan for people who wander aimlessly. Illogical hope gives strength to the weary. Illogical hope gives comfort to the hurting. Illogical hope gives faith-filled promises to live your life out daily. Illogical hope gives joy to those who are mourning. Illogical hope gives sight to those who are blind. The arrival of the Messiah, the promise from the prophets, gives us a logical hope to sustain for today and live in tomorrow. You know who the most hopeful people are on the planet? Children. That kid has no idea what's going on around him. He's so happy that he's playing with that cat right now. (laughs) He's just happy. If you are discouraged, come to church at Casper Alliance Church on Sunday morning and just watch the children. Don't touch them, watch them. They are so happy for no reason. We're singing a song, and I'm in the back of the church, and here is the most animated person in the church. Anybody know the most animated person in the church? Kira. (laughs) All while we're singing. Now, she's showing off a little bit, She's kind of one of those people that likes to say, look at me, I got a story to tell every single moment I have a conversation with someone. Children are so hopeful. One last scripture. Turn with me to Matthew 19. Remember, this is Matthew writing to Jews who are discouraged, that are dispersed, trying to cling to some sort of hope. And he's telling the story of Jesus the Messiah. One day, verse 13, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. Thank you, parents, for not scolding your children for bothering me. I'm not, I'm just the pastor, but sometimes that happens in churches, right? Like, leave, leave the pastor alone. No, we have this, like, great just openness here. I love it. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. Children are filled with so much hopeful qualities. They have wonder. They're, in, they're open to people, probably too open sometimes. They have a delight in living. They have a curiosity about the creation that they're sitting in. They want to know how things are made and, and where it came from. They like dinosaurs, which is fine. I'm 40-ish, and I don't like dinosaurs anymore. I kind of think they're lame. Except for that one that has like a ball on it, it's a tail, and it can hit me. That one's pretty cool. But, you know, they like things that are weird. They believe in stuff that they, like it, they have true remorse. They have true repentance. I used to have this skill set when I was, um, like it was like four or five years ago, I don't have it anymore, but I could look at Carter and just make a face at him. And he, he's like, would go and like be emotionally distraught because he'd feel like he'd let me down. That's a real thing with kids. They know. They're like, I did something wrong. 
And the older you get, the more you def- try to defend what you did wrong as right. Kids have this beautiful hope, and it's rooted in what they are, that they just live a life without the pressure of the world. And they know that they're taken care of. And sure, they might get hungry and cry and be a little annoyed that dinner's on the table at the perfect time, but they're happy. They might complain about eating peas every now and again, but they're happy and they know that they're gonna get provided for and all that they care about maybe is a hug. And the older you get, you see how that changes. You, if you who've had little ones that are starting to get bigger, you've seen how that's changed. I remember, I've locked my boys in at two and four. It's the best age because no matter what, I was hero. And no matter what, I could do no wrong. And they, I could put my arms around them and they, that's all they cared about. And the older they've got, it's changed. Now it's like tied to something else. That's part of life. We're all the same. We were that kid too. And now look at your life. It's the less and less hope because you've gotten older. You know what's one of the most beautiful things? Is an 80-year-old who reverts back to a child and says, you know what? I've lived long enough. I'm not gonna be grouchy about this anymore. I'm not gonna be grumpy anymore. I'm just gonna love. That's why grandma's become the best. Grandpa's, you're fine too, but that's it. Worship team, come on up.